Welcome to Ethical Machines. We are your hosts, Olof and Samin. Ethical Machines is a series of conversations about humans, machines, and ethics. It aims at sparking a deeper, better informed debate about the implications of intelligence systems for society and individuals. For this episode, we invited John Hong. Let's dive in. Ethical Machines. Thank you for taking the time. It's great to have you on. Could you maybe in your own words introduce yourselves? Sure. I'm a professor at Seoul National University. So I just arrived here about almost a year ago. I'm teaching architecture studios. Before that, I was teaching for seven years at the Harvard GSD, the Graduate School of Design. And I simultaneously had a practice called SSD, but now I'm starting my own thing over here. You recently published a video of your work called Interdependent Urbanism. Could you tell us about that a bit more? It was basically made out of Grasshopper, which is a a plugin for a program called Rhino. The end goal of that was achieve a kind of transparency because when we design our cities, there's zoning laws and they're very opaque, you know, and, and they were originally based on egalitarian principles. And it was based on trying to create commonalities. I'm trying to create equal access to light and air. So the zoning code was invented, but of course it's very complicated. You know, there's there's geometries, there's constituents, there's all these kind of things. So I was arguing that it's only through computation where we can actually look at simultaneous pieces of information and, and use this, a program like Grasshopper and, and actually it should escalate to a much more robust platform. But um, it's only through something like that where you can mash together so many different kinds of constituents and, and logics and information. So, you know, in a, a city is composed of transit systems, it's composed of energy systems, all kinds of infrastructure, but also um, social desires, and then the energy use of buildings, the materiality of it. There's so many factors. And if you were to, to try to create a kind of egalitarian city out of all those things, it's really actually impossible. So this program was supposed to be something that is uh, easily accessible to everyone. And you can kind of plug in your own thing. So if it's not to take away the hand of the designer. It's actually to empower the designer and all of us. And you can begin to weigh different parameters more. So if, for instance, a walkable city is more important, you can actually weigh that more on the slider. Um, or if you're a developer and you want massive profit margins, you know, and the, and the top floor condos are going to s- sell for a lot, you can weigh that more. But then through that kind of transparency, let's say like five or six or 20 or whatever stakeholders are using this program, they can begin to test their own ways in which to make the city. So it's a way that, that zoning could become something more democratic, something that's maybe more more transparent. And the cities can be based around this kind of thing where the, where the knowledge of how the city is made is actually spread across more stakeholders and more more easily visualizable. So what stuck for me was the sentence in your video which was saying instead of diminishing the role of the designer, it will actually empower us. Um, pointing towards Douglas Engelbart and, and the augmenting of the human intellect as he called it. And so I wanted to specifically ask you about this notion of empowerment uh, and, and how you conceptualize this for yourself. I think there's there's a sci-fi question in there because when does human desire disappear or be absorbed into some other conceptual framework? You know, this is getting a little philosophical in a way, but but um, still, when when I worked with my researchers and created that piece of software, or when I'm when I'm using computation to solve a problem, what I want to get out of it is still always in the foreground. 
And so the augmentation of it is still just a manifestation of that desire to solve a problem. Um, and of course, being able to solve that problem more quickly and more efficiently and more profoundly, of course, that affects that has a kind of feedback loop. And then it comes back to me and I get a new set of ideas, but it still has to interface with, with that kind of desire. So in a way, the augmentation, I, I think, um, hmm. I'd love to hear how you would approach that question. It maybe also connects to like the question of optimization, right? Optimization being like this this core notion, or used to be at least very central to architecture. So, like, mm -hmm. if you have this question of optimization, like, what do you optimize for? That's exactly right. Uh, what is it for is still a kind of decision. It still has a beginning point, I think. What is it for is the beginning point. Um, and there was a whole trend in architecture in that where it was a kind of fascination of the kind of post-human version of architecture where through optimization, you actually didn't have to do anything as a designer except for design the code. And, and then magically, this thing would appear. But the subtext of that story was a kind of design fatigue that, that society is facing now. They've seen everything. We've gone through so many different kinds of formal languages that nothing we saw was new. And of course, design is driven by a kind of desire for the new. I mean, it's, it's hard to escape. So that fatigue of having seen everything, that was actually the end point of this kind of computational game in architecture where you say, okay, I'm not even going to bother designing anymore because I've seen it and done it all. I'm going to let this, the, the computation do it. But people were writing the code to create things that were weird. You know, <laughs> actually it was, it was, it was that if it didn't look weird, that means it wasn't actually quote unquote computation, you know? And so now when I say empower the role of the designer, I mean, I'm going back to like computing is actually a decision support tool. So the decisions that you make are supported by, for instance, this framework that I'm trying to make. Um, it's, it's funny, a friend of mine, a uh, fellow professor um, named Charlie Choi at, at, uh, at Seoul National, he said, you know, instead of designers, we actually have to be really good curators. We have to know which parameters to tweak. And that doesn't mean we're no longer uh, designers anymore. Being able to curate that information is is highly nuanced. It's it's actually really really um, important. Um, at the end of the day, design is a form of communication, you know, and that communication is a is a kind of linguistic activity. So if you keep on optimizing, then what what are we communicating? So that's the kind of um, the dilemma that I'm that I'm confronted with all the time. Because sometimes when you optimize something, it doesn't look like anything. But you need it to look like something so that it transmits what it's doing. And that would be the ultimate goal, to, to converge what it's doing to what it looks like. But sometimes those things don't come together. I'm thinking about this idea of, um, you know, Bauhaus, like form follows function, right? Mm -hmm. On the one hand, like how, when you say like form is, is a kind of language, right? How mm -hmm. do you take things like functions into account in your design process? I don't know if it was Gropius himself that said that, but that kind of Bauhausian statement, form follows function. History is always changed by these statements that are so provocative, and you sort of abide by these kind of manifestos. It's an incredible manifesto, um, but I think they would agree today that it, somehow there's holes in that logic, right? Because their their forms were not that functional, you know? So I still love that term, form follows function, but uh, I want to go back to this idea of convergence, convergence of form and content. And, and so the, the content is, is culturally defined, I think. 
um, fu function no longer exists as uh, I think it no longer exists as a kind of mathematical proposition. And so, in terms of the, the city, uh, if you look at a, a functional city, sure, highways are very functional. They're super efficient. You can drive your car, whatever amount of speed, but they're totally stupid, you know. So what is behind that is that kind of a, a, a cultural shift that happened that that privileged the car. It, it was a cultural slash um, economic thing where Henry Ford began to buy railways and close them down in a way to kind of shut down alternative modes of transportation. So all those things are all linked together, and they are kind of cultural, social, economic factors that then created a kind of functional logic. So I, I think we have to be really smart and, and we have to really know the language of artificial intelligence and computation, all this kind of thing. But, but at the baseline, we also have to be cultural anthropologists and look at what is happening in terms of how we define function. You know, what, what is the kind of cultural definition of that? So that's why I call form follows function, the convergence of form and content. Form is still a form, but instead of function, I call it content instead. These underlying narratives, they're all moving more and more into the machine, in a way, into code. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is reconcilable somehow? This very hard mechanical logic, and on the other hand, more fine-grained human notions of that? A friend of mine that works for a really uh, well-funded architecture firm, that's the clients are, are very wealthy, uh, he gave me this example of, of why he wanted to quit his job <laughs> because, um, I mean, his firm designs incredible um, houses for, for multimillionaires. And so he's designing these these giant residences that are platinum lead, the highest lead rating possible. But it, it's a complete uh, paradox because why the hell is the house so big? <laughs> the house being so big is a function of some other thing, but it, it, it's an incredible piece of technique. I, and, and I think at the end of the day, it's technique, not technology, that, that is, is driving these kind of things. And, and we can learn a lot from technique, I think. But the, the baseline is actually this cultural, social um, problem that I, that I named before, is that the house is just too damn big. There's too much wealth in that house, and there's too much, you know, it, it just, it, it's a very simple problem. Um, maybe it's the rethinking of very uh, basic perceptual and visceral things that then can, can actually um, answer the, the question of sustainability and optimization in architecture. For instance, uh, one, one of the arguments that I'm making these days is that... Um, Size and space are not related. Like, like pe when people say space, they also uh, give it size. So a way that the two are not related, for example, is that size has become a commodity, where space has become an experience. So you know, when you buy an apartment in Manhattan, if it's a certain size, it costs a certain amount of money. You know, and, and so size has been quantified these kind of you know capitalist quantifiers. But why are we selling size? Why aren't we selling quality instead? So space is, it has a quality, and size is just you know a reification of that. So space, for instance, you you can feel like you're in a large space if it's designed correctly. Um, so how do we bring quality um, back into machine language? I think I think that will be one of the one of the factors. It's going to be an incredible thing. Can we begin to parameterize what we consider? 
what is spatial, what is spacious, you know, rather than just the size of things. And, and can we optimize those? I think it's possible, actually. I think this is where this kind of interdependency of different kinds of logics and computing power is now at a state where we can begin to put those things in there. Optimization right now is maybe too crude. It's like 8-bit resolution right now, <laughs> you know, but now we need higher res optimization, these other factors. How, how does That's this true. also tie in with um, things like, for instance, open source architecture? Um, where do you make of the open source movement for, for architecture? You could imagine that architecture, you know, parametric models become in a way not just like um, transparent, but they could actually become part of, uh, of something collaborative where you could actually see there's, there's multiple parties who can instill That's their own right. logic in that and it becomes a kind of democratic process. I love the open source model. I think previously the problem with collaboration was the slowness of it. And that slowness actually allowed the seeping in of ego. I think ego was, was something that kills collaboration uh, with a kind of more digital open source collaboration where things are much more immediate. You send a file, you hear something, you hear it back, and you forget who did what. That kind of melting pot, that kind of, it, that kind of more, uh, 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 it's much more synthetic, in fact, where, where the author doesn't have doesn't have enough time and and that feedback loop doesn't get um taken over by this kind of emotional baggage in a way open source is going to bring in this almost like the synapses of the brain it's actually going to the speed of it is going to allow us to be more collaborative and less less egotistical and then i think that's where the parametric actually takes an incredible role because uh, and, and the idea of quick feedback was, what if you had dissenting parties in your, in, your, in your small collaborative circle? What if you're designing a building and there's like 20 consultants and things like this, and then there's a structural engineer that just doesn't believe anything? And you put them in, and he's, he's like writing his code, and you're getting immediate feedback. I think it could be an incredible uh, way to do it. Instead of that person being, being a kind of stick in the bone because he slows down the process, he could actually become you know, embedded in, in a process that's quick. Yeah, in, in architecture, is open source uh, becoming a trend on the horizon? What's the state of open source in architecture? Architecture is, is one of the most regressive practices, you know, because it has so many contingencies, it actually tends to be very conservative. And one of the conservative aspects of architecture is authorship. Architects are, are still using the term starchitect, you know, um, they're still uh, sort of stuck in the idea of authorship and things like this. And, and that's actually holding up the, the open source movement. But the base level of that is the fees in architecture are actually quite low, as you know. You know, the, the, the money that we make, because it's a service industry, you know, we work a certain amount, amount of hours, we get paid for it, and then we pay extraordinary amounts for liability insurance in case our building kills somebody. You know, so the, the monetary structure of architecture is so crippling that it's only through the creation of, of rock star personalities right now um, that, that people see a way to actually make money. So it's all tied into this kind of thing. Um, where open source, the, it, it's threatening architecture because all of a sudden it can be possibly free. And how can how can we how can we monetize any of that? So all of a sudden, it's gone from the aura of the object to the action. It's gone from the object, which is more like discrete, 
to something that is more action-based. You know, architecture is actually becoming more of an action verb than, than a noun. It's almost a linguistic shift, going back to linguistics. So I think this is a very exciting place. I mean, looking at um, machine learning and AI systems, we talk mostly about this switch from more parametric models to more generative models. What are current models for architecture and more kind of this current models you're also working with? What are they lacking? What is the main mm -hmm. challenge there? Mm -hmm. It's interesting because the problems that we were given in school almost fetishized the site. Like, like it, how does it make place? How does it create the aura of, of this? But now people are thinking prototypically. And prototype is being misused, but it's a kind of a fun word to play with. Like, how is this, how is this kind of prototypical way of thinking? Like, it, we solve this problem in this place, in, in this time, for these constituents. But can it also be a system of relationships that can then be tweaked and applied in another situation? Um, so, so that kind of thinking is manifesting itself now. I think with younger students, they're thinking actually more, more procedurally, like you're saying, um, and less about the kind of singular, um, singular artifact. I, I think that's an exciting thing. So maybe connecting to that, um, we've been reading a bunch of Christoph Alexander, but we've been uh, approaching Christoph Alexander through, uh, you know, patterns applied to object-oriented programming, and it was only years later I realized, oh, that guy was actually an architect. What's your general view on, on Alexander? Is he still something you would mention to your students, or is he uh, a dinosaur on the way out? It's interesting because I think maybe even five years ago he was a dinosaur on the way out. But now he's hot again. I think there was a couple things in his text that folks maybe misunderstood or put too much weight on. Um, I don't profess to be an expert on Alexander, you know, but there's certain things that he says that are essential. You know, he kind of essentializes certain things and says, this is the way human existence is. And these are the patterns that have ingrained themselves through history. And these are the only way things can happen. So in a way, he vacillates back and forth between something that is procedural, but then sometimes he makes a claim that there's these kind of fixed nodes of correctness. You know, he talks about the right way to do things, the right way social behavior should happen. So when he drifts into that, that's when it becomes too essentialized, I think. And it's funny because if you remove those bits, it's actually really radical. Um, but but it, I, think, I think we need that. I think we need, we need to have someone state that there are perhaps some essential things only so that we can either rebut them or rewrite them somehow. But if we say that life and thinking and philosophy and, and, and all these kind of things don't have these nodes, uh, it's hard to measure wh where we're at. So I'm a, I'm a kind of person that always believes in everything is relationships and, and three relationships, things begin to aggregate and patterns begin to emerge and they seem fixed, but they won't be fixed 10 years down the road. I, I'm, I'm, I believe in this kind of thing, that everything is based on contingencies. You gave this amazing talk called Psychedelic Architecture towards a new allegory. Uh, how did you get to write this talk and give this talk? What's the background? So uh, psychedelic was a way to bring in the crises and the culture of the 60s back into the current discourse. So in the talk, I gave examples of Jimi Hendrix and poets and that there, there was actually a medium through which they were expressing the kind of crisis that was happening there. It was an energy crisis, it was a crisis of ethics, there was all kinds of things going on. 
And um, now we are actually having the same crisis. And I showed photographs that were very similar, like the Vietnam War protests and then the protest on Wall Street. And I just turned the modern photographs black and white just to match the 60s photographs. And all of a sudden, we couldn't tell which era we were at. But then in, in the 60s, there was a medium. You know, there was the poetry of Allen Ginsberg. There was John Coltrane that was completely just like turning jazz on its head. Um, and then I also named the metabolists um, in Japan who were, who were, you know, creating this incredible architecture that was becoming infrastructural at the same time. So there was a form there, there was poetry, there was music, all these things that was responding to the social, political, and, and ecological crises. Now, in this era, we don't have those things. You know, there's, we, there's so many exhibits now on metabolist architecture. But, but these days, all we have is uh, optimization of architecture by putting solar panels on it, but it doesn't look like anything. Um, so that's where I was saying that the role of the psychedelic, where our minds are blown <laughs> by, by the experience and by the look and by the sound of our cultural artifacts, that is actually what we need. Instead of looking back towards the 60s, instead of looking back at metabolism, we actually need allegories which are basically stories. We need stories in terms of form making, in terms of these kind of things, to then create educational frameworks, but also instigate change. So, so where do you also stand on, on this issue of mass unemployment through technological breakthroughs or, or maybe you know, very well-designed generative systems for architecture leading to mass unemployment of architects? You're right, these generative systems, uh, it applies to architecture, but it applies to so many other things, right? Like in terms of basically replacing humans. Humans were replaced in the industrial era by machines, let's say, machine assembly lines. But now these generative processes can actually supplant thinking. But what about post-employment? I, I think um, the question of, you know, like authorship and things, it is about architects holding on to to their kind of signature and holding on to a kind of idea of employment, monetization. So I think this question of monetization somehow needs to be debated by some incredible economist because I don't know a good answer for it. I, th I think money should be obsolete, basically. You know, this sharing economy, some threshold needs to be crossed and open source and all these other things actually develops into some kind of open source in terms of kind of sharing economy. What do you mean you don't even call it economy anymore? But the idea of employment, I think, is going to become obsolete. I don't think we need to drive our cars anymore. We don't need bus drivers. We don't need phone answering people. We don't need architects. <laughs> we don't, a lot of things that we, we don't need, need anymore. And, and that's okay. I think that's actually, that's really good. And so we shouldn't be holding on to archaic practices that, that are actually failing just to keep people employed. It's kind of a one-way thing, like you do work and then you get paid for it. It's a totally obsolete model. So maybe we can ask the question the other way around. What would you never or not automate with AI? The only way I can think of it is, is romantic thinking. It delves deep into nostalgia. I love playing my saxophone. I don't, I, I don't think I would want to <laughs> digitalize that. I guess as long as we are embodied, you know, we have sight and we have these kind of visceral, tactile ways of perceiving. As long as we have that, I, I, I think there will be things that 
that people will not want to digitize, right? Like the sound of something, like the sound of running water or something like this. The one thing that I, that I cannot imagine replacing with AI is is actually uh, sitting down with my musician friends and jamming because the, the decisions are so micronic, you know, the, the decisions are so fine-grained. The acoustics of the room, the read on my saxophone actually might might be slightly off, but that might actually lead to some other kind of creativity. Um, so the feedback loop is so nuanced and so complex that there's a kind of level of conversation there. But isn't that just a factor of processing power? Isn't that the fact that our brains are so fast processors? I mean, people argue that computers are, are now actually the hardware is faster than the hardware in our brain, but I don't know if that's true yet. Uh, so we talk about like what you enjoy, which is jamming. So what are generally the things uh, in, in your field or in machine learning you're most excited about? Uh, and what do you also think or hope that the future might bring? Gosh, I, uh, I'm going to a meeting tomorrow, so I, that's on the forefront of my brain that I'm excited about. I'm part of the curatorial team for the Seoul Biennale. So I'm working with Alejandro Zeropolo. He's a professor at Princeton. So he's one of the, the co-directors. And then this other professor, Hyungmin uh, Pei, who's in Korea. So the Biennale is going to launch in 2017. And the curators talked about what is the new comments. Speak, going back to the idea of the new commons. And the commons was actually a spatial construct at one point. It was like town square where people got together. You know, it was, it was a place where everyone could be equal and the public can actually come together. But the new common, the new urban commons these days are almost like action verbs and they give access. So for instance, uh, transport or movement is a kind of new commons. We should all have access to mobility. Uh, making is a kind of new commons. Um, you know, like sharing, uh, these kind of things. So instead of being spatial terms, they're actually action, they're actions. Uh, and then they inscribe themselves in the city. So I'm really excited about how we can begin to speak in architectural terms about what is the new commons. If you made it this far, thanks for listening. And also, we would really love to hear your comments and any kind of feedback. So drop us a line at info at ethicalmachines.com. See you next time. Adios. 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 Adios.